Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 53. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. They help you develop hydration strategies and electrolyte strategies to help you perform at your best on race day, avoid things like cramping and especially perform well when the races get longer and the temperature gets hotter and the air gets more humid. You can take a free online sweat test and that consists of just 10 questions that you can answer qualitatively online and it takes a few minutes time and that will give you a validated estimate for how much you sweat and how much sodium you lose in your sweat and that will then inform your hydration hydration strategy that you will actually get on the final page of the quiz after answering all the questions so you don't have to do any math or stuff yourself you will get that already and as i've said it's it's been validated against actual sweat test data that precision hydration has collected from thousands of uh, of athletes Check them out, and if you want to try your first box or tube for free, use the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world leaders in wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, as well as now moving into prescription glasses and all sorts of eyewear, really. So that's uh, an exciting area of innovation that I recommend that you check out. I, in particular, like the Aviator sunglasses and the, the SL uh, Performance Sunglasses series. Those are really, really good. You can get 20% off your order on roca.com with the promo code TTS, all caps. So on to the first question for today, which is from Brian in the UK who writes, I'm sure you're confident enough in that triathlon show to answer this. What are your top five favorite podcasts? So uh, yeah, I had to think a little bit about this, but at the end of the day, it was fairly straightforward. I think that the uh, the top five stand out among the rest. There were a couple of, uh, of contenders here, but I'm pretty happy with the list that I created. And hopefully maybe you you will find something new here that you haven't found out about yet and can listen to that, but uh, only do that after you have listened to your TTS episodes, of course. Uh, so uh, the, these are not in any particular order. Uh, so this is just a top five without any, any hierarchy. Uh, so Fast Talk is a, a podcast by Vela News. I really like it because it has uh, great topics. They are definitely looking at the forest before the trees, seeing the big picture. They have some great guests. And uh, one thing that I love that is quite unique is that they often have multiple guests per episode. So you can get uh, both complementing but also contradictory viewpoints and perspectives, which is very useful. And uh, I have uh, to give you an example, one of my favorite episodes, I'm going to do this for all podcasts, is episode 68, which is called The Big Picture, The Three Types of Rides That You Should Do. They also have uh, plenty of great, great guests on the podcast, like Asker Jokendrup, Sebastian Weber, Steven Seiler, Stacey Sims. Uh, many other guests have also been on that triathlon show, of course, uh, but they are always really great to hear, and uh, you always learn something from them whenever you listen to them. So definitely listen to other podcasts as well when you can see these great names in the sport make appearances. Then we have a, a new podcast, which is the Endurance Innovation Podcast, and uh, you've heard actually on that triathlon show the interview that i did on that podcast with uh, my friends uh, andrew and michael 
that are the hosts. So Michael Lieberson from X3 Training and Andrew Buckrell from uh, Four Eyes and Stack. And uh, again, I think they have great topics, great structure, great guests. They keep it fact-based. So uh, very similar, I think, to that triathlon show. And that's one reason that I like it. My favorite episode probably so far is uh, episode 12, which is Metabolism 101. And I think they did a great job of breaking down metabolism, which I think a lot of you would probably be very interested in hearing about and uh, need to learn more about, at least if you are uh, a self-coach athlete, then it's important to to know these things. And of course, they also have uh, had great guests despite... Uh, the show being so young and not having many episodes yet but they still had time to have people like david tilbury davis alan hovda and steve paladino on so so really really a good podcast then we have uh, uh on the complete opposite side of the spectrum a very very long-standing podcast uh, ask a cycling coach by trainer road they have uh, an enormous range of topics from the very broad big picture stuff to some very obscure and to be honest quite often less interesting stuff to me but uh, they have some great deep dives into topics that uh, that can be quite important and or really important so a lot of great information there uh, although i do find that i need to do a little bit more filtering with this podcast perhaps than with the two aforementioned podcasts which is uh, probably just uh, a natural consequence of the nature of the podcast this is a completely Q&A based not completely but uh, largely Q&A based podcast so so they choose questions and they of course have to answer the questions that they choose I do like the Q&As and it's just that some questions are better than others and that's why it's a bit more of a mixed bag sometimes but uh, but the, the regular Q&As are my favorite episodes of this podcast, not so much the special episodes, which might be like race reports and stuff like that. Uh, those aren't my cup of tea exactly, but there are some special episodes that are with guests. They I wish they would have more guests on this podcast and in particular more coaches. I think that perhaps they trainer sees themselves as uh, competing with coaches, which I definitely don't think is the case, but that might be a reason. Either way, they do occasionally have guests on, like recently Andy Blow was on, for example, and that was a great interview, an ex- example of how great uh, the, the guest interviews as well can be. But the Q&As are great. Uh, some questions are particularly great. Some are less interesting, but in general, really great podcast and some really great deep dives. Usually at least one really good a really good nugget every single episode, which uh, which is all you can ask for, really. And and also, as mentioned, some some great guests then we have the Training Peaks Coach Cast, which, uh, despite its name, I think it's relevant for athletes as well as coaches. They, as well, have great guests and topics. My favorite episode here is probably episode 11, which is Nutrition Mythbusting with Asker Jokendrup, who is uh, always a great pleasure to listen to. And uh, they have had many great guests on, despite not having that many episodes out either. I wish they would be more consistent with their content, but um, yeah, that's. Uh, but they do have the backlog that they do have is great. They have, uh, in addition to Asker, they have people like Tim Cusick, Alex Hutchinson, and many, many more great names of the sport in the guest list. And finally, on the final spot here in my top five goes to a Swedish podcast, which is called Prestera Mera, which means. Uh, directly translated uh, perform more uh, which actually also would be a pretty good podcast name so that works out it's uh, a mix of selected topics that uh, the hosts do deep dives on and questions and answers 
It's a very science-based podcast, but definitely does not neglect the practical aspects. So it's a great mix, I think. And they also have some great guests, all of them Swedish-speaking. But uh, my preference really are the deep dives and the, the Q&As that they do. So those are my top five podcasts, endurance sports podcasts. Brian goes on to ask, a few people have been training for a 7.3 with a very hilly bike course. The hills around here aren't anything close to the profile of the race. They're generally, the people have generally used short hills around two to three kilometers, which is what is available here. My initial, my initial thought was that as the profile of the race is more like six big climbs of 20 to 40 minutes, then longer zone-free low-cadence repeats in training would better simulate that course, even if those repeats was, were done on a rolling profile. Given enough time, the correct strength and conditioning would also build leg strength. Hope that makes sense and would welcome your thoughts. So thank you, Brian, for your question. Uh, that's a really good one. And I would absolutely agree with you here that definitely the longer, more sustained segments that you mentioned, even if not done on hills, even if done on rolling terrain, are more specific. And I also agree that uh, the correct strength and conditioning can help with uh, with cycling. Although I don't necessarily know that strength and conditioning is going to be more beneficial for a climbing race than for a flat race to be honest i don't think that there's any evidence for that at least and even anecdotally i'm not quite sure that that would be the case because with long sustained climbs you'll still basically keep more or less you'll go at a slightly higher power than you would do in a flat time trial because then you get to recover on downhills but you'll still have a power profile that's not all that different from what you would have uh, in in a flat race and even cadence can be manipulated with uh, the right gear selection and gearing on the bike for that matter so uh, so yeah strength and conditioning does help absolutely i'm not sure that you should do it just because you're racing a hilly race i think that you should do it just because you're a triathlete and it helps for triathlon performance uh, but uh, going into the specificity part and the climbs and hills in particular uh I would, if we break down specificity, then we have a few variables that can be manipulated to create more or less specificity. And we have the, the trifecta of power, duration, and cadence. So that's sort of like your physiological variables. Then we have some environmental variables like heat, humidity, wind, altitude. And then we have the, the skill requirement profile. So these are descending skills, cornering skills, momentum preservation on the rolling course, cobbles and uh, all sorts of things. So considering in particular the hills here, if you train for a course with those long sustained climbs by training on those short two to three K climbs that some of your friends are doing, not you, then most importantly, that power duration relationship between training and racing will be very different. So it's not specific. For a 7.3, if you're a competitive athlete, then with if the race course had only two to three kilometer climbs, then you would go probably at least to FTP, maybe just above FTP, depending on your race dynamics on, on those short climbs. But with sustained climbs, you, you would probably cap your power at around 90% of FTP or so, maybe 95, depending on the duration of the climb. So power is lower, but on the other hand, duration is longer. 
and and if you train on those two to three kilometer climbs that your friends are doing they might last five minutes and well that just can't possibly simulate 40 minutes of sustained climbing so that's pretty self-explanatory as you say going on any training course profile or even going on the indoor trainer and specifying the duration to be specific to the race the race requirements so 20 to 40 minutes and uh, and the power to be around your target race power for those climbs and also using a cadence that you will be using in the race so you need to think here in advance about what gearing you'll be using this does simulate the entire physiological uh, trifecta of variables the power duration cadence profile here in terms of skill, there isn't that much skill involved in riding up long sustained climbs. There, For sure there is some, but not a whole lot, let's be honest. So it's not the end of the world if you can't practice that skill. Going down, descending, is a lot more skill-based, of course. So it would be important to practice this if you are to really try to nail race specificity, which, uh, of course, makes sense to do. And this is where maybe you'll have to use those two to three kilometer climbs and just go up and down, up and down, and use those downhill segments to, as best as you can, really practice your ability to uh, to descend. And a great thing, of course, if you can go on a training camp and do it with longer sustained climbs, that might be great, but uh, pro- of course not possible in every situation. In terms of the environmental variables, those, again, might be difficult to replicate and to specifically prepare for unless you live close to the race or or you're able to go on training camps to to simulate the the temperature the humidity or even the altitude of where your race is going to be so uh, so that's about it i think that you're absolutely right like focusing more on what the actual power, power duration cadence profile is going to be is more beneficial than focusing on the fact that there's a grade or not because that's at the end of the day not the the most important thing there that there is to it you can absolutely do really good simulations of hilly courses on the indoor trainer that's not to say that you should train on the indoor trainer all the time but uh, but it's just to say that it might not be more specific to to go and ride two to three kilometer climbs than to be on the indoor trainer and do some specific structured work so thank you for your question brian the next one is from bruce and I'll cut the start of the email short here. Bruce basically has used my beginner Olympic training plan and then my intermediate Olympic training plan uh, for two, success, two successive uh, Olympic distance races. And uh, first talked about how he's improved his times. So thank you for that. There was a long testimonial there that I won't read now, but uh, the plan worked well for Bruce. Let's put it that way. The question here is uh, one, warm-ups slash pre-exercise stretching and movements. Are these necessary or is simply starting the workouts at an easy intensity and building into them enough? If dynamic warm-ups are necessary, do you have any guidelines or routines that one could follow? So the correct answer here is it depends. (laughs) And uh, if we dive deeper, I think it's always great to get in five minutes of pre-workout mobilization dynamic stretching before any run and swim i don't think it's necessary for cycling but i do know some coaches and physiotherapists do and there's nothing wrong with that of course i respect that opinion 
for me a pre-run or pre-swim mobilization and that's not for me personally but in my coaching uh, that will improve the workout it is for me personally as well of course but uh, mostly in coaching it will improve the workout quality for most athletes so for that reason it's especially important before your quality workouts where you actually have to do some intensity but also before your easy runs and swims i think that adding a short pre-run or swim mobilization helps you at the very least get in some regular mobilization in general it doesn't really matter if you would do it completely separate from the workout but even that will help so that you don't get chronically stiff and uh, locked up so even if uh, before those easier workouts the the normal endurance recovery workouts it might not change your workout acutely that much i think it does change your workout but maybe not as much in the long term you help keep your body from getting stiff, getting locked up, which may happen with all the training that we do as triathletes. So personally, as I said, I get in four to five minutes before every run and swim. It's a short time and I consider it highly beneficial. But uh, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's absolutely necessary. It's just a great, great added thing to do that does add to, to the effect that I get from the workout. I'm, I think that I could get away with not doing it at all but uh, some of my workouts would be slightly worse in terms of performance and in the long term i think i would get slightly worse exercise economy due to stiffness and lack of proper activation of uh, muscle groups and potentially even i would run into increased risk of injury so it really is a trade-off and for most athletes that might not train as much as uh, as others my recommendation would be to maybe do those pre-workout mobilization mobilization routines before every swim and do it before the quality runs so uh, so you might skip those easier runs if you feel like you're completely fine just going out and starting easy and building into it even when those runs don't get particularly hard but anytime you go out for an endurance run or a recovery run usually the first kilometer or two are the slowest because you really shouldn't be going hard at all until you've warmed up your your muscles so so the speed will come more naturally to you once you're a kilometer or two into it anyway if however you are somebody who who really are quite stiff and you feel stiff when you're running slash swimming then then i think you should be doing this before every single workout so uh, so that's uh, that's the gist of it so uh, to wrap it up or to make it more clear I think that if you don't feel any particular need to do it, then still do it before every swim, because I know it's going to help you on the swim. And also do it before your quality runs, because I know it's going to help you on your quality runs have a better run. You raise a great point, Bruce, that in most workout prescriptions, including the training plans that I've created that you use, uh, the prescription starts usually with just easy running. There's no mention of... There is mention of dynamic warm-ups before the vo2 max runs i believe so the track workouts essentially but uh, there aren't there isn't any mention before things like tempo runs or threshold runs and uh, not before any swim that i'm aware of and actually it's a great point i should when when i next revise these plans i will update it because i think that it is something that uh, that should be done before at least before before certain harder quality workouts and so i should probably add that and i should record videos with the routines that i recommend using so i'll put that on a list for future revisions of the plans in the meantime i don't have any particular videos or resources to point you to but the main idea 
before whether it's swimming or running is that you want to open up all and mobilize all the joints that you will be moving in that workout as the especially as the prime movers and you want to activate the main muscle groups that you will be using so of course for running the dynamic warm-up will be more lower body focused and for swimming it will be more upper body focused although there is a little bit of both in for for both disciplines so uh, to give you an example for running and keep in mind here all these stretches are dynamic you don't hold them you only stretch out for a second or two and then you then you switch to the other leg or whatever the stretch calls for in its dynamic form but uh, the things that you want to do here include hip openers you want to do a quad stretch dynamic quad stretch you want to do a hamstring stretch that can be inchworms and you might do hamstring kicks as well that's a great dynamic warm-up you will want to uh, to open up the the calves and uh, the ankle joint by doing uh, calf stretches and inchworms again are great here ankles you can specifically target with things like ankle flips and uh, not to forget lateral movement you want to activate your adductors and abductors and these are dynamic lateral lunges uh, right and left right and left so that you get both of those muscle groups and you want want to finally make sure that you uh, you activate your your spinal rotation so doing things like the twisted warrior pose is a great one for swimming, as mentioned, some other joints, some other muscle groups, more upper body, but you get the point. Bruce's second question is, how should one train or recover in the week after a race? Would this be different for an Olympic versus 70.3 distance? Would one go straight into the next program, such as restarting the 12-week Olympic distance plan, anticipating that the first weeks of a program may start off slightly easy and build from there? Or is there a better approach in the weeks after a race? So uh, this is a a difficult question. It's uh, very individual based on ability and race distance. A very experienced athlete might need less recovery from a 7.3 than a beginner needs from an Olympic race, for example. The main thing here is really to listen to your body and err on the side of caution if you're not quite sure if you're ready for hard work again. So uh, a few guidelines here. Most of my athletes would have at least four days of only easy training after a 7.3 race. On the fifth day, they might return to doing some quality work in the pool. On the sixth or seventh day, they might do quality work on the bike. But when I say they might do quality work, it doesn't mean that we go back into the full-on hardest set of intervals that they've ever done. It's something, it's more of an easing back into into intensity. So if they used to do four by 20 minutes at sweet spot, they might do three by 10 minutes or or maybe three by 12 or something like that. So it's not a full-on like super hard workout right away. And the running here after a 7.3, it only gets back to quality at earliest on day 7 or 8. But for some athletes, it may be all the way back at day 10 or 12 after the race. After an Ironman, assuming that the season isn't over, so they keep training, there will be at least a week of no hard training at all. Swimming might start to incorporate quality early in week 2, so from day 8 or so. And the bike later on in week two, maybe from day 10 or 11 or something like that. And the run, we would start to incorporate quality work again in week three. So from day 15 after race. For an Olympic distance, some experienced athletes 
and and that also recover well might only need a couple of easy days and then it's pretty much back straight back to normal and here we don't necessarily have the same need to to go really easy it depends on the season structure what other races are coming up but an olympic i think that many athletes can go back to when they get back to quality they're more or less back to normal if that is what is required at that point of time but here it's worth putting out a word of caution some athletes can go back to normal completely normal after two days or after three days but it doesn't always mean it's the right thing to do so keep that in mind and pretty much the same goes for a sprint distance race for a sprint i'd probably treat swimming and biking more or less the same as an olympic but running can if needed go back to quality running even a day sooner compared to the olympic since you only did a 5k so whereas for the olympic we might wait four days to do quality running and then we might do that three days after doing a sprint distance race because that's a 5k is more or less like a normal track workout so so it's something that you're pretty used to a bit harder of course but but more or less in the same realm of of training load so note here that i mostly talked about when to reintroduce the quality workouts i do think that it's very important even after something like an ironman that the day after the race you do some sort of active recovery not a run but do a swim or a bike or even something like using the cross trainer and it's just needs to be 15 minutes or so nothing nothing more than that nothing crazy but uh, but just to get your body moving again and of course, even though you might wait five days to go back to a quality swim after doing a 7.3, that doesn't mean that that you shouldn't train the other four days. You absolutely can train the other four days. And this really will depend on how much training load you're used to, how much you should be training. But yes, I do think that you, if your season continues, you have more races. One of those days might be a rest day, not the day after the race. That should be an active recovery day, but maybe the second day should be a rest day. And, uh, and then you have some easier endurance session sessions until you start doing the the quality again so uh, so that's it like when i was talking about those number of days until you start training it's until you do any hard training it's not until you actually just train and go out and do zone one zone two training another important thing to keep in mind is that if you are more of a beginner and you feel that the race was very hard and arduous for you uh, it took a lot out of you and you might be carrying a lot of muscle soreness then for you you might need to treat an olympic distance for example the way i just described a 7.3 which is from the perspective of typically more slightly more advanced athletes and and the same goes for like you might need to treat a 7.3 as an iron man it really depends on how much it took out of you and, and how sore you are so depending on your level you might need to treat these guidelines as one distance longer or treat your race as one distance longer than it actually was in terms of how i gave my guidelines and uh, another note is that even after getting back to doing quality work again be mindful of how your body feels and how you feel that it responds to training especially after longer races you might need to take a much more gradual approach than you might think from the point of easing back into quality workouts until you are completely back to your normal volume and intensity load shorter races are easier quite often you can go right back into your normal training routine once you have hit those points where you start to where you do your first intense workouts in each discipline 
So uh, these are all things that you need to keep in mind when working with with the ready-made training plans like the ones that uh, that I provide on the website as well. So for example, let's say you do an Olympic and then you have a 7.3 race scheduled 16 weeks later and you work with, with my 16-week 7.3 training plan, for example. Then yes, you need to adjust the start of that training plan. You should probably count on doing only 15 weeks of that training plan and you would simply start from week two and that first week after the olympic race you will treat as the week that you're getting back into training and uh, just just discard the first week of the 7.3 plan simply as an example of how you how you think of of these sort of things so thanks for your questions bruce really great ones and congratulations on your racing success that's it i hope that you found these questions and answers useful tune in again on monday we have a great episode coming up then with uh, scientific triathlon coaches james teagle and uh, larklan kirin so we have a coaches roundtable where we will discuss base training which is the phase that many of you are now entering so really really good stuff definitely tune in for that Thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test and get a personalized hydration strategy. And try your first box or tube of electrolyte product for free with the promo code Show, all on word, all caps. And thank you to Roka. They are the world leaders in wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. You can get 20% off your order on roka.com with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.